All right, Matthew, welcome to episode 65 of the Performance Advantage podcast, where we bring sports science to the people with myself, Dr. Will O'Connor, and Dr. Matt Miller, sports scientist. This week on the show, we have Dr. Blake Perry, who is a world-leading physiologist who focuses on blood pressure and brain blood flow. It's a hard one to say, but he focuses on it, and in relation to exercise, something Matt and I really haven't talked about it, Blake considers it basal physiology, so we get into the nitty gritty with him, bit of a deep dive into, oh man, a lot of things, because Blake is also an elite downhill mountain biker, so it, it all encompasses sport and sports science, so I'm pretty excited to get Blake on and have a bit of a chat. Shout out to our sponsors, Smart MTB Training and Endurance Training Hub. Also, we've got the Performance Advantage Masterclass, six-part online course. We've got 50% off for the rest of 2020 because lockdown keeps coming and we just keep getting requests for more content online. So go check that out at performanceadvantagepodcast.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Well, Matt, I was able to carb up. You were here. You saw me going pretty hard on the carbs um, after about 18 days in ketosis. How did that feel? Like, you looked like you were loving it. Yeah, I was. Um, it, it kind of wrecked me, though. Like, <laughs> it was like, um, it was super tired afterwards. I don't know if I was just tired from the day, but, man, the, the big bolus of glucose, sugar, I think, sent me into, I had the best sleep, though. But uh, You needed a so- nap, eh? yeah and yeah so like um the ketosis have you been following like my my socials and youtube and stuff been doing ketosis to sort out my diet and um drop a bit of weight and that all went well like i lost two kgs so that's awesome and um had a 10k running race so i was carving up for that because the last one i did was excruciating um so this one is uh, goal was under 34 minutes 33.59.6, Matthew. Oh, wow. So you'd round yep. up to 34, I guess, but you Your beat Strava it. did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, obviously. Nice. Um, but the, like two weeks ago, so in full ketosis, I was 37.01. Um, so, you know, a dramatic difference. And I guess like outside of going into ketosis, carving up, something we've talked about on previous episodes around like the, my low-carb approach to endurance exercise um, was – my pacing and course knowledge and like Matt you love a good pacing chat yeah I do we actually did our webinar on pacing yeah and I I took a lot from that and so I knew this course that we did like it was was a bit of a weird one because we did three and three quarter laps so we like started a bit down the way but anyway it's um it was windy and it's got like you kind of go up a gradual hill down a gradual hill and and you've got this headwind but knowing what i knew from last year that how like we all went out a bit fast blew up because um you start on the uphill so you know you generally start too hard but in combination of like the course knowledge and using running power i knew when i was running up the hill what my equivalent you know speed was and also going into the headwind so yeah i was able to close out second second 5k faster and um finish with like 
uh, it's like a 317, 316 kilometer, whereas my average is, is 324. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. Sweet. That's what you want. You want to walk away from a race feeling like really good, like you did everything in your control. And by controlling everything you can, you know what to do when you get into it. And it yeah, sounds like that's exactly what you did. No, as it, there's no better feeling than like having that, making that decision to speed up. Yeah. You know, like in the last, so around seven Ks. And so I was second. Um, there's a guy I finished just 15 seconds ahead of me, but I started to close him and I was like, you know, what? coming into this last lap is about 2.7 Ks. You know, I was like, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to get after him. And, um, but it like, Rather than last time, it was just, oh, damn, I hope I can finish. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad feeling. It's the worst. Yeah. And then you, yeah, and if you, you know, maybe you're not working with a coach or something, and you look back on it, you're like, like, oh, was I not training hard enough? Did I, you know, like, did I not taper enough? As opposed to, like, I definitely went too hard. Um, So, so yeah, that was, that was awesome. What about you, Matt? You, you do anything? Yeah. Do anything cool? Well, so after the, we recorded our last podcast, I was kind of hinting at this knee pain that I had. And I continued because we did the length of uh, NZ Triathlon, which Kieran's now finished. But earlier, we um, I did quite a bit of riding with him. And I got back. The weather was great. So I actually continued to do quite a bit of riding. But my knees just got worse and worse. They felt so bad. I was like, well, I have to take time off. I didn't really want to. <laughs> but um, I was like, all right, five days it is. So I took five days off and um, my knees like slowly started to feel better. But now like they're feeling really good. And I think, you know, with spring, we're in spring now. Summer's coming up soon. Like I don't want to have to deal with this pain later. So I figured, all right, let's just have a break now and get rid of this pain. Changed up some um, positioning on my bikes. And I, I feel much better and the legs are feeling great after that break. So, uh, yeah, been back into it, doing some quite a bit of riding and feeling really good. So did you actually have five days off? Um, well, one of the days I did a hike and the other day I did like a short, easy ride. Exactly. Yeah. It's, everyone <laughs> always is, um, I had a, had a consult with an athlete and, um, and then I was catching up with him after a month. And so he was a bit burnt out. So we went over some things. And I was like, time off, you know, that's first and foremost. And we set up a plan and then we came back and he's like, yep, I had seven days fully off. And I was like, I looked at your training peaks. You didn't, you had five. He's like, yeah, but the other ones were easy. You know, it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I see that all the time too. Um, so I, I guess I wasn't totally off, but, um, I think walking is actually really good. Short, easy walk, I think is really good for that kind of thing. Cause you keep the blood flowing, but you're not doing any damage and oh, blood flowing, man. That is perfect yeah, segue. It does into... lead nicely into this episode. So it, it was, so that that's me, but it's really good actually to get Blake on this show because we did our PhDs kind of with him. So he finished actually as we were getting started in his PhD and he looked at brain blood flow. And I really wanted to get him on the show because he can really explain the physiology really, really well. He's done some mountain bike research with us. He was a participant in my studies, helped with one of my publications using the brake power meter. And 
Um, he's, he's a great scientist, and he now works as senior lecturer at Massey University in the physiology department, and it's really good to have him on. Yeah. All right, so here's Blake Perry, Dr. Blake Perry. All right, Dr. Perry, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Good to be involved. So whereabouts are you, Blake? I'm, I'm currently sitting in my office in Wellington. Oh, yeah, at the Sounds University Massey? Yeah, yeah, so Massey University on the, on the Wellington campus. We are just talking, like, trying to describe, like, what you <clears throat> do, <laughs> right? So, and, so why don't you kind of go through that and tell us, like, how you would describe yourself as a scientist? Oh, that, that's that's a very tricky question, as we already spoke about off here. Um, so, my general research here, I, I guess I'd classify myself as a an integrative human physiologist, and it's just fancy words for uh, trying to understand how multiple body systems all interact. And my main research area is sort of within. A subset of the cardiovascular system. So trying to understand how blood flow to the brain is regulated during different stresses. So things like changes in blood pressure during exercise or changes in environmental stresses such as heat stress. If you're hot and you have an increase in body temperature, what does that actually do to the brain and the regulation <clears throat> of blood flow to the brain? Uh, and, and also other things like breath hold manoeuvres, resistance exercise itself. So just trying to understand what actually happens to the brain by looking at more of a, I guess, a broad picture of um, all the different inputs that can affect brain blood flow, such as blood gases, changes in blood pressure, changes in pressure within the scale, all those sorts of things. And I do have a, an exercise physiology background, so I still occasionally look at the effects of exercise on, on brain blood flow, but broadly speaking, how blood flow of the brain is regulated. Have have a couple of other side projects as well, um, looking at exercise performance, uh, but that's really my main topic area for my research. You've also dabbled in some uh, mountain bike research. I have. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have. Um, so following, following my PhD, um, I was... Uh, Managed the Human Performance Laboratory up in Palmerston North at Massey University. And so I was involved with a variety of projects, including uh, some of your work, Matt, looking at uh, measuring uh, braking power. And that was that was actually really interesting. Uh, mountain biking is a, a passion of mine, and I'd say my primary sport. So it was really good. It's good to try and mix those, uh, those hobbies with a little bit of science as well. Yeah. So I was um, thinking about uh, when I participated in some of your studies and, you know, we we were in a vacuum chamber um, mm -hmm. and we were being heated up. It was like so hot and there was no way to cool down. And there was this box that you had built and it was it was sucking all the air out, keeping everything with low pressure or uh, mm -hmm. negative pressure. Right. I think mm -hmm. uh, it was. And you were looking at what was happening in the brain, and then another researcher was looking at what was happening with temperature regulation, and you guys combined all the data, something along those lines. But I'm just kind of wondering, like, before you guys came along to do that research, 
Was there much known about what was happening with blood flow, blood flow regulation to the brain? Yeah, well, it's it, the whole area has really shifted um, massively in the last sort of 10, 20 years. So traditionally, it, it was thought, and there was a there was a very famous and well cited paper now that was published in, in 1959 by Larson, and it, and it showed that irrespective of what your blood pressure was, so even if your blood pressure was between, um, your mean blood pressure was between 60 and 150 millimetres of mercury, which is a huge range, that your brain blood flow would be stable. And whilst this, the processes within the, the vet blood vessels within the brain is an instant, over a, a, a short period of time, the, the vessels within the brain would respond to that change in pressure such that blood flow to the brain would be quite stable. But my PhD supervisor, um, Sam Lucas, showed that if you actually increase or decrease blood pressure, brain blood flow actually does change with it. And this was a, a huge paradigm shift, and that paper was published in 2010, and there was some evidence to indicate that earlier. So even within the last 10, 15 years, there's been this huge paradigm shift to show, well, actually, these regulatory mechanisms that help maintain brain blood flow during changes in blood pressure aren't actually as good as originally thought because the original paper used pooled data from multiple different clinical cohorts with comorbidities and other vascular disease and said no this is this is what it is and showed this stereotypical uh, what's called an autoregulatory curve but that's kind of been thrown out the window now and whilst it does still exist to some degree it's no way near as good as originally thought. So if you do have changes in blood pressure, it can produce changes in blood flow to the brain. And it's really important when we think about things like exercise, because we do see changes in blood pressure during exercise. So that paradigm shift does have an implication for exercise, particularly when we see big changes in blood pressure, like things during, like during resistance exercise or rowing and we see these big fluctuations in blood pressure, how's the brain actually coping with those? So obviously, like, the brain needs to keep, or the body needs to keep tight regulation on blood flow to the brain. So can you talk us through a little bit about, like, why is it so important um, to control that? And maybe just, like, um, quickly background blood pressure, just kind of what it is, yeah. and, and, then, and then the relation to the, the brain as well. Yeah, no, those, those are really good questions. So um, blood pressure is the pressure exerted outward against the, the artery. So we all know that we have a heart and we the blood um, from the heart is pumped into arteries. So arteries take blood away from the heart. And usually when blood is pumped from the heart into the arteries, it's under a high pressure. And then so we have two circulations. One circulation goes to the lungs. It picks up that oxygen, comes back to the left side of the heart, then the left side of the heart pumps blood around to all the other tissues within the body. And so the left side of the heart is quite is a bit bigger and a bit stronger, and it pumps blood into our large arteries like our aorta, and that takes blood around the body. So normally, um, when the left side of the heart contracts, pumps blood into these large arteries, it's under a high pressure. But then as blood travels away from the heart, then goes through the capillaries and then comes back into the veins, that's under a low pressure. And so blood, like 
Any other fluid will move from an area of high pressure in the arteries to an area of low pressure in the veins. So blood pressure is really important because it moves blood. So blood pressure is important because blood will move from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. And if we maintain blood pressure, it'll maintain that pressure gradient from high to low and maintain the circulation of blood. And obviously if you have circulating blood, there are all the nice things that the body needs in that blood that all the cells need. Glucose, uh, oxygen, they can also remove waste, all those sorts of things. So maintaining blood pressure is really important for blood flow to all issues, uh, all tissues. An issue is that the brain is above heart level, which is kind of strange considering that we're actually bipedal, we stand upright, but the fact that the brain is above heart level does generate blood pressure issues. So blood pressure at the level of the brain is actually quite a bit lower than it is at the heart simply because of that height difference. And you, yeah, exactly. And, and you see, you see this issue even when we stand up. So blood pressure drops acutely when we stand up. And, and I'll talk a little bit more as to why that's important. So in order to have adequate blood flow through the brain, we need to maintain blood pressure. And the brain's a really selfish organ because it'll maintain blood pressure just so it gets blood. And that's has obvious importance because if we don't have blood flow to the brain, we, we all know what happens there. We faint if it's too low. And the issue with the brain, obviously one being it's above heart level, but two is that it has a huge energy demand. So it only makes up about 2 or 3% of our body's mass, but it receives about 15% of our overall blood flow and is responsible for about 20% of our oxygen consumption. So it only makes up 2 or 3% of our body's mass, but uses 20% of the oxygen. So it's incredibly selfish and demanding. And really inefficient as well. Like it can't even burn fat. No, exactly. You know, like it's a really bad design. Like it, it, it is. Put it right at the top of the body, like really exposed inside a skull that can't move. Yes. <laughs> you look at you guys happened. using your large brains to, that's <laughs> basically a supercomputer to bash how your brain works. Uh, exactly, and that, that, that's another important point and why blood flow is important to the brain because it needs its energy source from the blood and glucose. It can't store its own energy. And so, for example, you can occlude your hand, you can occlude blood flow to your hand and it'll, it'll last half an hour, no problem. You do the brain and it'll four minutes and the tissue will die and you'll be unconscious in about five or ten seconds. And so we've seen people faint with blood pressure that's dropped for five seconds and they're unconscious. And so that's why blood pressure is really important because it helps deliver oxygen, deliver uh, nutrients and glucose to the brain because it needs it and it needs it fast. And so it, it is an issue. The brain can't store its own energy. It needs a constant supply of blood. It can't actually extract much oxygen from the blood compared to skeletal muscle or the heart. So it, it's actually quite inefficient and a very strange organ, despite it being obviously important for our overall survival. It's really important. And you sort of alluded to something that it, it being within the skull. And that's, that's great for protection, but it also can be detrimental um, in a clinical sense if there is pressure within the skull, if there's a bleed or if there's an increase in um, cerebrospinal fluid. The brain has nowhere to go. It's in a rigid container. And you can kind of think of it like if you 
if you filled a, a cup of water. And so if you had a cup and half filled it with water, water and then put an egg in it. And so that's exactly like the skull. So the cup will be the skull, the egg will be your brain, and then there's the water will be the fluid around the brain or the cerebrospinal fluid. So it's kind of like that. The brain can move within this rigid tube, it also can hit into the sides. It's it's again, it's not not an ideal design for our most important organ. There's obvious problems with that if you think about things that we do and like your sport, which is mountain biking with these massive vibrations that are happening. Mm. And there's actually still not a lot known about that, um, about like kind of what's happening when we're doing like a risky sport or we're hitting our head on the ground um, and things like that. That I guess that's not really your area, though, is like looking at concussion like that's that's totally different, right? That is. That is. Um, And. It's quite an interesting interplay and that there's even like, for example, a a model for repeated small um, head contacts is heading in football. So I know a lot of concussion labs actually look at repeated heading of a football to mimic a concussion. Uh, and you can also see with um, potentially action sports and mountain biking, even rugby, for example, it's really coming to the forefront that a a concussion is a traumatic brain injury. It used to be the sort of, oh, he's just knocked his head, but you can't actually see what's happening inside the skull and potentially with repeated head injuries and you, you look at boxing, for example, and the prevalence of Parkinson's disease and with the NFL, you look at CTE and the brain deterioration and the onset of depression and it's it, it is quite frightening and I think that's all the more reason to actually look after look after your brain and um, take it seriously, take head knocks seriously, get a good helmet and all those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is quite frightening when, when we think about things like that. But if we look at the, the overall benefits of exercise, they far outweigh the risks. So I think that does need to be emphasised. If we look at endurance exercise, for example, you see that for age match control, so if you have someone uh, who's sedentary versus someone who is trained and you look at those individuals throughout their lifespan, um, you see that people who regularly endurance exercise or re- habitually um, complete endurance exercise have a higher brain blood flow. So exercise, endurance exercise does offset the age-related dec- decline in, in brain perfusion, which is obviously a good thing. And that comes along with um, things like increases in cognitive function. Okay, I was go- I was going to ask that actually because I was thinking our listeners are going to hear that and say, "Well, there we go." That's why I'm so much smarter is because I do endurance exercise regularly. But the- is there any link between the the increased blood flow um, and maybe your IQ or something like that, or how how well you can complete some sort of task um, and like how much you exercise? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, there, uh, as I said, there are a relatively higher um, brain blood flow uh, for people that regularly endurance exercise. But if we look at some of the um, some of the, the measures that I use, um, it's a little bit difficult to tell exactly what brain blood flow actually is. And I don't want to go down into the methodology side of things because that's a, a, a a rabbit hole that we may never come out of, um, but it, it is difficult to, to tell. And 
with the measures that I use, uh, brain blood flow velocity, you see it's higher in children, and then you see it, it, it's higher in females compared to males. But this may be due simply to the, the architecture and the size of the artery. So it, it is difficult to tell. But the short answer is I'm not 100% sure because it's difficult to, to have a control in that regard. But it's something I can definitely try and find the answer to. It's not necessarily my area. Right. So one question I, I've been thinking about is like, um, I was actually talking about your study with someone who, um, uh, like he pretty much collapsed, I don't know, 500 meters from this finish line, a guy that I coach in a half marathon. Mm-hmm. It was like a hot day. He clearly went out too hard, but, um, you know, it often gets, uh, misdiagnosed as like, oh, you didn't drink enough. You got dehydrated, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of impossible after an hour 20, but, um, and I was telling him about how I did your study of lower body negative pressure. So essentially like half my body, like my legs were in a mm. vacuum. And then uh, it was just horrible, eh, Matt? Like I was wrapped, like you had that water profuse suit, which had, it was just like wearing a, 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 like a wet suit with like a hose going through it with hot water and then wrapped in an emergency blanket. And um, I remember for me, because I've always struggled with the heat um, and like being fine and then being not fine. And I remember in your one, you guys were really surprised at like the rate of, of my heat accumulation, right? So like it was, you were trying to, you, it was called passive, passive heating, I think you're calling it. But, um, and Toby was looking at the, the heat stuff and you were looking at the brain. And so I guess, yeah, I've got a lot of questions built into that, but like the main one is really like, what's, what's happening with the heat and blood pressure and blood flow because you know like i'll be red like i'm a pretty pasty guy so you can see when i'm hot but then when i overdo it i go white so mm. like something's happening with like my heart rate will drop and like i'm there's there's a lot going on and i have fainted like before mm. so like what yeah. do you got around that <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this will be a fun one to unpack i like i like this stuff so i'm yeah. looking forward to this there's quite a bit to unpack there so what would normally happen when you get hot, you have receptors in the, in the skin and, and the brain that will sense that change in, in temperature. And this is the classic physiological feedback loop. So you have a, a change in skin temperature. The, an area of the brain, the hypothalamus, will then determine an appropriate response. And we all know what that response is. You sweat and you send blood flow to the skin. So in order to offload that heat to the environment, you begin to sweat. Because as that sweat evaporates, it takes heat with it and you're offloading heat to the environment. Also, if you send blood flow to the skin, it's closer to the environment and therefore can offload heat, particularly if there is a breeze. And that's why you feel cool in in a wind, because as the air moves past it, it takes heat with it because there will be a gradient between your skin and the environment. So heat will move down from uh, an area of or warmer temperature to an area of lower temperature. And if there's more air moving past, there's more opportunity for that heat to be lost. And that, that, that's just, that's your standard response. But in the example that you gave when we were heating you up, there's no opportunity for that heat to be lost because you're an emergency blanket. You can't lose that heat to the environment. Another way in, in what you said was the exercise is that if we're heating your skin, then you're going to gain heat because you can't offload heat to the environment. 
But when you're exercising, you're generating that heat from within. That heat's coming from the active muscles. So it's two slightly different mechanisms there. But what can happen is as you start to increase um, your, your heat loss or attempt to, your body temperature will still actually rise even on a, even on a cool day. And once you get up to the, the sort of heat stress levels that you're talking about, you can start to see signs of heat illness where these compensatory mechanisms don't actually work. And then that can lead into heat stroke and potentially a life-threatening condition. So when you say that you start to feel cool, um, even when you're extremely hot, and you can also see people get goosebumps and begin to shiver when they're hot, this is when these auto, these regulatory mechanisms that are trying to offload heat start to fail. And that's, that's a dangerous condition to be in. Because if you get, you look pale and you get what would normally be, you'd be normally sending blood flow to the skin and you'd look red, as you say, because there's more blood close to the skin. If you begin to look pale, it's because those vessels have now constricted and you're not sending blood flow to the skin. But blood has heat in it. So if you stop sending blood flow to the skin, where's that heat going to go? It's actually going to track back in towards your internal organs and do the exact opposite of what you want it to do. You're going to start gaining even more heat. Because if you're not sending blood flow to the skin, that heat can't escape, so it's trapped around your internal organs. And this is this is quite common. Like when we see people, when we actually heat people, their internal temperature initially drops. Because as you send blood flow to the skin, all the heat goes away from the internal organs and your body temperature drops. Likewise, if you're extremely hot and then all of a sudden you cool the skin, those vessels are going to constrict and all the blood's going to rush back in towards your core. So it can kind of have the opposite effect of what you want. So particularly when you are really hot and you're getting in towards the, the heat stress, um, sorry, the heat illness and heat stroke area when your core temperature is around 40, or above 41, depending on the individual, these mechanisms to help you offload heat fail. And that's a dangerous condition to be in, and that's when you're actually going to get an even faster rise in core temperature, and you can rapidly descend into heat stroke, unconsciousness, and when we get into really high body temperature, cell function can stop because of protein denaturing and all that sort of stuff. So it, it is quite dangerous. If we look at it from a blood pressure perspective, if you're sending all this blood away into the skin and into the periphery, it actually makes it a little bit harder to maintain your blood pressure. And we see that brain blood flow during heat stress, if your body temperature, your core temperature is raised by one or one and a half degrees, the blood flow to the brain is reduced. And this appears to be predominantly driven by the hyperventilatory response. So you're hyperventilating, getting rid of more CO2, and that drops brain blood flow to the brain. Um, so there's quite a bit to unpack there. There's offloading heat and also the hyperventilation. So you're much more likely to faint in a hot environment than you are in a cool environment. Particularly following resist, uh, exercise where you're hot, because even if you didn't have an increase in core temperature, blood pressure drops following exercise anyway. So you kind of have a triple whammy there. Post-exercise hypotension, particularly following endurance exercise. After you, when you finish exercise, blood pressure drops. You have the hyperventilation response, which is driving brain blood flow down anyway. And you have heat stress, which will lower your blood pressure anyway, because you're trying to offload heat, 
sending blood to the skin and not to other organs like the brain. So there's quite a bit going on there in some complex physiology. We, uh, we did a webinar last night and uh, the webinar was on pacing. And, you know, I, I love to talk about a good pacing strategy and power output and things like that. And like I've, I've blown up in races before when I didn't have a good pacing strategy, you know, starting too hard uh, and things like that. And that's bad because we know that our bodies can't sustain that kind of energy uh, utilization because we just don't have that capacity. So we need to start like pretty steadily. But I remember at the times when I did blow up, I, I remember feeling hot in like the weirdest places, like my <laughs> my ankles, right? Like I had long socks on and like I blew up after like five minutes. I remember thinking to myself, like I really need to just push my socks down because my ankles are so hot. And, uh, you know, some of these things that you're talking about, um, you know, like overheating and um, the the sudden loss, uh, you know, sudden buildup of heat. And some of the other things, like we might be able to actually avoid some of those during exercise if we just exercise a little bit smarter um, and avoid that overheating and avoid um, that uh, pre-onset of fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a really good lecture online by um, Professor Jim Cover, a colleague of mine down at the University of Otago, and he talks exactly about this. Um, and how there's been some work in this area looking at athletes and thermal perception and thermal comfort. And if you manipulate, for example, the head, you can change thermal comfort, but it also modifies thermal perception. So you don't know you're hot, you don't feel hot, but you actually are, which is, a, a, and I need to get this correct, is, is slightly dangerous. Whereas some of the research is showing that, I think in the Ironman, the Kona Ironman, um, one of the winners was wearing ice gloves. So it was cooling them, but they didn't lose their thermal perception. So they could still pace appropriately because they could perceive um, how hot they were, but they had a cooling device to help offset that. So their thermal comfort was different, but they, they could still perceive they were hot. So, it, and again, I'm straying a little bit far from my research area, but it's about trying to maintain thermal comfort, but also not losing the perception part of it. So it's almost a, a safety strategy to know if you are still getting hot, um, then you still know what to do. And, and a classic um, going completely the other way, if you look at the use of methamphetamines um, in the uh, Tour de France, um, this does exactly the opposite thing. So we're talking about blood flow to the skin. Uh, methamphetamines um, reduce blood flow to the skin, but also provide, obviously, energy. And so they had athletes just absolutely cooking themselves because they couldn't offload heat because methamphetamine was offsetting skin blood flow. And so it's kind of a, an interesting, from one extreme to the other, that thermal perception and endurance exercise is, is really important because it's important for safety and also pacing strategies. What about alcohol? Well, that, that, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure if there's been any work done in that area about alcohol and thermal perception. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, because that like has a, a flushing mechanism, right? Like it, it, it does, it, it does. But I, I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen any research um, on that. But that doesn't mean that it's not out there. It's just yeah, a bit I of just... bro science. 
You know, like, <laughs> oh, you're cold? Just take a shot. Yeah. Right. No, they used to like they used to drink wine and and um, like vodka and whiskey in the Tour de France as well, like, and smoke cigarettes. Yeah, like Tour de France <laughs> is a very long history of like drug use and cheating and stuff. So, but anyway, yeah. So I remember you know you talking almost about like tricking your body, tr- tricking your brain. You guys were like putting sort of like capsaicin gel or um, menthol gel on people's faces. To, is that what? What that kind of research was trying to do is to like trick the brain into saying, you know what, this temperature's fine. I'm just going to keep on going. Yeah, exactly. And it was all about. Um, this was actually a, a study by um, uh, Zach Schlater, who's who's in the states now, um, and he he was trying to show that um, what is the effect of thermal sensation, thermal comfort of the face and the head, and how does that regulate your power output and pacing strategy? So it, that he kind of contributed that whole area around thermal perception and pacing and all those sorts of things. So exactly that. We were trying to trick the brain, or Zach was trying to trick the brain by um, changing thermal perception, whether you put menthol or capsaicin on the face. Were you tricking the brain or yourself into make you feel, oh, yeah, I'm actually fine, my face is cool, and it offsets the um, thermal comfort uh, offsets the fact that you're in that heat suit that you talked about. So really interesting study. Horrible to be a part of, but really interesting study. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine like rubbing capsaicin anywhere near my eyes uh, mm. or on my face because I we used to use it like for like races that were really cold. We would rub that kind of gel on our legs and it lasts like it's hard to get off. It, it There's is. a lot of oils and like so you're in the shower scrubbing and like obviously you're in the shower and like you get... <laughs> You know, you get it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then like including your eyes, right? Yeah, and uh, which you're trying obviously not to do because you know what's going to happen. It's going to really burn. But you mm. guys were putting it on people's faces, which yeah, yeah. And crazy. so we had goggles on, but I oh, mean, right. that, yeah, that doesn't necessarily help afterwards when you're sweating. So, so can you trick trick yourself? Like, does it work? So. Our uh, our listeners are thinking, okay, well, I just need to go get get some of whatever that is. Get some but deep does that actually work on my face? <laughs> um, I have to try and remember the results off the top of my head. Um, it sort of goes back to the the, the previous um, the previous conversation that we had, and that it, it may affect thermal perception, um, particularly if you're cooling, like if you actually have something that's going to help you dissipate heat, and so. Maintaining thermal perception is is the main point there. So trying to cool the head may not necessarily be the smartest idea because you may affect thermal perception. So you see some of those uh, ice towels and things like that, but it depends on the environment. It, it really does. Like if it's not hot enough to warrant um, that sort of thing, it, it's not going to make huge difference. Um, whereas if you're in, you are in a hot environment that you do need those strategies, then there are probably other mechanisms that are probably more useful. Like, um, like things that actually work. Yeah, right? yeah. Like things that are actually cooling you down. Mm, yeah, right. Exa- exactly. And like I gave the ice gloves example, but because the hands are quite well perfused, they do receive quite a bit of blood flow and they have a quite a large surface area. Um, so that's an ideal sort of, um, I guess, body part to be targeting. Same with the head. The head is really well perfused, even the skin around. Um, so you do have a lot of blood obviously going inside the skull to the brain, but the extracranial um, 
tissue is quite well perfused, but again, if you're, if you're modifying thermal perception, it may not necessarily be a good thing. So there, there are other, other strategies, and I used to see this quite a bit, um, in the, when I was managing the human performance lab about people coming in wanting to heat acclimate to hot areas. And that, that's a whole another strategy in itself, which is probably far more important, um, and more effective than putting an ice towel on your head. Yeah, right. That's like that's like a whole another rabbit hole um, to get into is, like is. the heat acclimatization. Um, but so if we kind of bring it back a little bit to some of the things that you were doing, I'm just recalling one of these uh, research studies that I did for you, and basically we were just squatting and standing, squatting hmm. and standing for I th it was I think it was a couple minutes, and there was this uh, this probe and you use some sort of um the the gel that you i i'm i'm at a loss for i don't know what these things are um, yes so the probe was on your head just yeah now. and it was like pushing really really hard and i remember like oh yeah come on bro i can squat and stand like for five minutes mm -hmm. easy and i remember getting like three minutes in Thinking, yeah, and you're like I'm gonna staring faint. at the because you gotta <laughs> stare at the wall. Yeah, and you're just like, all you're doing, like, was there a chair or were we just free squatting? Free squatting. Yeah, we were just squatting down, standing up, and then after yeah, like a couple of minutes, you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna pass <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, so that that we actually just published that study. Um, so I, I guess the main thing is to completely ignore the fact that you're squatting. That's kind of besides the point. But what we were trying to do there was, it, when you squat and stand, obviously when you squat down, blood pressure goes up. And when you stand, blood pressure goes down. And you can see how if, you, if you're squatting continuously for five minutes, you're going to generate this nice sinusoidal wavy pattern in blood pressure. And then if we get you to do a different uh, repetition cycle, so for example, if we did the first one, we get the squat for five seconds, stand for five seconds, squat for five seconds, and then the next time we do 10 second cycles, um, what, 20 second cycle all up. And so we generate two different patterns in blood pressure of varying frequencies. And then if we look at the brain blood flow, so that was the little probe that you're talking about stuck to the side of your head. If we're producing these bigger swings in blood pressure and then looking at how the brain responds to these changes in blood pressure, we can kind of get an idea of how effective the brain is at responding at, to these changes in blood pressure. And that's called cerebral order regulation. So how does the brain actually defend against changes in blood pressure? Because we've already talked about blood pressure is important for blood flow. If we don't have blood pressure, we don't have blood flow. And we see this in other organs as well, like the kidney, but I'm, I'm more interested in the brain. And so if we assess the relationship between the blood pressure, the input, and the output, or what's actually happening with brain blood flow, we can get an idea how we can run a fancy analysis. And so what I was what I was really looking at there is, how does habitual exercise change that? So if you're resistance trained, which during a normal resistance training session, like squatting, you'd you'd see these changes in blood pressure. Um, does the brain adapt to that? Or with endurance exercise, where you don't normally see those big swings in blood pressure, does that affect the brain's ability to defend itself? And we showed that there were only minor differences with resistance-trained individuals, um, some very minor differences. Um, but on the across the board, 
you normally see that brain blood flow regulation in terms of how well it responds to changes in blood pressure is quite well maintained. Um, there's been some evidence to indicate that in endurance trained individuals that the brain is less effective at defending itself against changes in blood pressure. Um, so what that means is that for a number of reasons actually um, endurance trained individuals are more prone to fainting. They have low blood pressure low, lower blood pressure generally and their brain blood flow mechanisms may not be as good as sedentary individuals or resistance trained individuals and so in combination of those two things and structural changes within the heart you see that um, endurance trained individuals particularly highly fit individuals are more prone to fainting because of impaired brain blood flow mechanisms so that's not an argument against <coughs> uh endurance exercise is it no absolutely not absolutely not um, it's an observation uh, yeah and, and I think it, it's important to, to talk about both the benefits and the potential detriments of, of exercise. But don't get me wrong, like it's, it's definitely better to be exercising. And as I've mentioned, endurance exercise offsets the age-related decline in um, brain blood flow. It also stimulates the release of other neurotrophic factors that help stimulate um, or strengthen the communication between neurons in the brain. Um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and it has a whole host of very beneficial effects. This is potentially just one of the, the downsides, but if we think about it more broadly and sort of take the brain out of the equation, having a lower blood pressure while still generally maintaining consciousness is a good thing because it reduces the effort at which the heart has to actually undergo to pump blood around the body. And yeah, like what's what's happening with the with the um the blood pressure kind of thing where you have you might have um if we have the like world champion marathon runner um you know it's like highly fit individual small person generally as well then you've got like your everyday weekend warrior um let's say like Locally in New Zealand, we have the Round Talpo 100-mile bike race. You know, there's a lot of people, thousands of people do that. And then you've got your, if we go all the way to the other extreme, you've got your on-the-couch office worker who gets, like, drives to work, sits at a desk, drives home, lies on the couch. So, <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you bike to work, don't you? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Oh, every day. Yeah. Um, so, we go through, like... And and blood pressure is different, and people like often like clinically that that they're going to test your blood pressure. If you're doing some kind of health check, they're checking blood pressure. And um, not being like my area of expertise, I've always wondered like why like why are they always checking blood pressure? And also like um, on waking up, people are like, oh, check your blood pressure every morning, even in athletes to search for signs of fatigue and like this is your area like blood pressure um this is not and so i was like those are some of the things i've i've often like had no answers for yeah so th th that's a really good question um so so blood pressure is really important as as we talked about <clears throat> with maintaining uh blood flow but the the downside of that is that for some people um, blood pressure can be high, and sometimes there's actually no clear reason as to why that is. 
so that's called idiopathic it's don't know the reason but the the reason why blood pressure is important because is because a, a number of things really if blood pressure is really high um it can damage that the vessels so if you have really high blood pressure it can damage arteries it can damage the small delicate vessels um and if we're damaging the blood vessels uh, that can lead to a reduction in blood flow of the end organ so we don't want that we want all organs in the body to receive adequate blood flow the arteries or themselves can remodel themselves in response to changes in blood pressure particularly over if blood pressure has been high for longer periods the artery wall thickens um, and it loses some of its ability to expand and respond to other inputs that may be telling it to dilate or get bigger or, con or contract. But one of the, the main things is that the heart has to work harder. So just say that you have a balloon, and this is the way I describe it. If you have a balloon and you blow a balloon up and it has a certain amount of air in it, okay, then you blow more air in it, and you'll find that as you put more and more air into that balloon, it gets harder and harder to pump more air in because the pressure inside the balloon increases. So once your balloon's really, really full, the pressure inside that balloon's gonna be really, really high. So that means for you to put more air into the balloon, you have to generate a higher pressure than what's in the balloon because the air will only move from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. And the same thing with the heart. If the pressure in the arteries is really, really high, your heart has to overcome the pressure in the arteries. So that means it has to generate an even higher pressure. So the heart is constantly having to work really hard just to pump blood out. So if you have high pressure or blood pressure within the arteries, the heart has to work hard to pump blood out. And the heart's a muscle, just like or very similar to the muscles in your leg or your arm, and it can fatigue and it, it can really start to struggle. And so if the heart is constantly having to work hard, even at rest, that can result in catastrophic failure of, of, of the heart. And this is where you start leading into um, heart failure territory as well. So having a low blood pressure means that the heart doesn't have to work as hard to pump blood to all organs. And <clears throat> when you talk about resistance, uh, sorry, just exercise in general, it's important to remember that it can exercise can modulate the, the nervous system. And so the nervous system has a, a quite a strong control over, over blood pressure. And exercise can help reduce the effects of some parts of the nervous system, which mean that the arteries dilate and that it can have a blood pressure lowering effect. So <clears throat> there are many other factors, <coughs> excuse me, that can contribute to um, blood pressure environmental factors, smoking, diet, uh, family history, all those sorts of things. But exercise on the whole appears to be beneficial in lowering blood pressure, meaning that the heart doesn't have to work as hard, the arteries are nice and compliant, and it's a protective mechanism. But it, it, it's pretty interesting with endurance exercise, is because the heart becomes so strong and powerful, it ejects a lot of blood per beat, and that can sometimes be viewed as a detrimental thing. It can harden the arteries as well, right? It, it, some types of resist, uh, resistance exercise can. Okay. Resistance yeah. exercise can. And endurance exercise can, but it's a different type of hardening um, to what is more viewed as the detrimental type of hardening, 
hardening. Um, and again, I'll just park that for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the heart becomes powerful and it can eject a lot of blood or a high stroke volume. But the arteries actually become compliant and they act as a buffer and they can accommodate that increase in, in blood ejection from the heart. So they act as a buffering system so that when you get to the brain, you're not seeing these big swings uh, in pressure because the heart's ejecting a lot of blood per beat. So it's, there's some interesting, really interesting compensatory mechanisms. So the arteries compensate for the fact that the heart's powerful and it reduces that potentially damaging effect of the, on the brain and things like that. So it's some really complex physiology going on there and it all relates back to blood pressure. If we are taking the blood pressure where we normally do with the, like the, the cuff <laughs> on our arm, Mm-hmm. Are we getting an accurate measure of blood pressure? Because you're saying, like, if um, I'm really, really fit mm-hmm. and maybe I could produce, like, a higher blood pressure from my heart because it's so powerful, mm-hmm. but then my arteries are going to, like, um, kind of, yeah, uh, buffer that mm-hmm. through, like, an absorption kind of thing. Then by the time it gets to my arm, like, am I – are we looking at what's happening at my heart or are we looking at what's happening in my arm? It's a really good point. Um, generally speaking, the, the pressure waveform and the yeah, so the pressure waveform changes. So the 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 pressure in the arteries changes as you move through different um, divisions of the arterial system and as you move further away from the heart. But that's one of the reasons why you measure it in the upper arm because it's approximately up at heart level. So it's one of the better estimations. So, for example, if you took blood pressure at your foot when you're standing, it'd be a lot, lot higher than it would be at heart level. If you took blood pressure at the brain, it'd be lower than it would be at heart level. So at the arm, it's the best estimation without being invasive of of, of blood pressure. So you're right that the aortic pressure, so as blood just leaves the heart, it will be diff- slightly different to what you see at the arm. And even using that method, um, and using the corticob sounds and, and listening to blood pressure, it is actually different to what you'd normally see in the heart, particularly with the diastolic or that lower number in the blood pressure. It is different, but it's it's an easy, non-invasive measure. So that's the best we've got, other than sticking a catheter into the radial artery, which most people don't really like. <laughs> so I guess like even though like blood pressure is so important and it might change mm-hmm. sometimes, is there any reason why athletes should be measuring their blood pressure in the morning? Is there anything that they're going to see, maybe related to their training or some sort of autoregulatory mechanism that might change maybe with fatigue or something like that? Or is that yeah. just, there's no point? Yeah, it, it's, it's still obviously worth measuring blood pressure. Right? It, it's, it, it's, generally, it's generally advisable just to, to keep a, a check on things. But it's really important to remember that things vary. Like... Even if, if we're measuring blood pressure continuously and you see someone sitting there doing absolutely nothing, just breathing, you'll see blood pressure swing. Um, and that's due to breathing and at a lower frequency due to output of the, the nervous system. And so that variation is quite normal. Obviously, you're going to generate a range for yourself, which could be useful. But yeah, it, it's worth measuring blood pressure. But normally when you see changes in blood pressure, that's almost the ambulance at the bottom of the hill sort of thing. Um, there may already be a change in, in training or fatigue. Obviously, it's a good marker, 
but there may be other things at resting heart rate which contributes to blood pressure. Um, it, it, it's just another tool in the arsenal, but knowing what that actually means for you is another question. Yeah, because you're saying, um, like, <laughs> and just when we're, like, getting you on uh, about variation, mm. right? Like, in in your email, and um, you're saying how variation is generally misunderstood. Mm. Um, and that may not, like, I'm not sure if you meant particularly, like, hey, I'm going to take my blood pressure every day and I'm going to be up here and down here. Like um, I've been um, on my keto diet, I've been monitoring my weight. And uh, I do this all the time whenever I'm like trying to lose weight. I'll measure my weight like three times a day. Like first thing in the morning, middle of the day or at some kind of time during the day and then just before I go to bed. And it's massive. Mm. Like, you know, like depending on hydration status and exercise for the day can be two kgs or more um so yeah what were you like if we get into like that variation side of things yeah i i've done exactly the same thing um and as part of my role here at massey university i I teach um and teach uh, nursing students and health science students and sort of just piggybacking off two of the the points um that we've already talked about with the weight, I've done exactly the same thing. I plotted my weight over 38 hours and it varied by 1.7 kilos. Um, and that I wasn't, I hadn't changed diet. I hadn't done anything. I just exercised and changes in hydration status. Such the a other, scientist, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and the other thing was blood pressure. And when we used to measure blood pressure in the lab, I'd, I'd get people coming up to me and they're like, oh no, my blood pressure is not 120 over 80. Which is seen as the standard for some reason. And I was like, well, and particularly with the, the cohort that I was teaching at the time, um, young fit individuals, they had lower blood pressure. They may be 106 over 70. They're like, is that bad? As they stand there, talk to me. And I was like, well, no, because you're clearly conscious, therefore, blood pressure is sufficient to supply all tissues. Because they get concerned that blood pressure is lower than. The magical number of 120 over 80. Now, of course, if your blood pressure is critically low, that is an emergency that needs to be addressed. But if you are conscious and have no neurological symptoms, then that variation is just completely normal. And I was talking, what I was meaning by that that variation, and if we think about exercise, there is a misunderstanding about how variability affects the outcome. So if we start thinking about losing weight or if we think about adding muscle mass in the gym, there's this misconception that if I do X, I get Y. So if <laughs> Three I, sets of 10? Yeah, if I do three sets of 10, I'm <laughs> going to end up looking like Arnie. Or if, <laughs> if I go for three 10K runs a day, I can do a half marathon and I'm going to improve my VO2 max massively. And it simply doesn't happen. And I, I think there is this misconception that everyone can be pigeonholed into, if you do this, you get this response. And we see variation in everything we do, how we look, our anthropometric measurements, our, our responses to other stresses, um, whether it be pharmaceutical or dietary. And so it doesn't seem like too much of a leap to just say, well, we see that same variation in the adaptations to exercise. Not everyone responds the same. You have responders and non-responders. Some people 
may have very little change in their VO2 max despite training. And I think by the general population, this is viewed as an issue because if someone asks me a question, I'll say, well, it depends. And that can sometimes <laughs> be misconstrued as, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because I'm like, well, hang on, this person told me I get if I do this, I'll, I'll increase my bench press by 10 kilos. And so science always sort of lurks within the grey areas um, and doesn't yeah. promise anything. It's and, a curse of being a scientist and also working like with people who want to know answers because <laughs> they are not always in the same. Uh, they're not always the same thing. I, I, I completely agree. And yeah, as I mentioned, I do a fair bit of teaching and, and a very common question is, should I be doing this diet? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I really but don't you, know. But you do know. You just know lots of different parts about it. And you can't say for sure which, mm. uh, so maybe not with diet specifically, but if someone asks you a question, being a yeah. scientist, you're thinking of all these different scenarios. <laughs> um, mm. You know, the classic philosopher uh, yeah. kind of thing where like, mm, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was on another podcast uh, with, the, with the gym, um, the Massey University gym, and they're asking me some questions. They're like, what's your advice for diet? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like, for who? Um, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's these sorts of things that I think are lost in the a general public and whether that's a fail as I get deep and profound, whether it's a failure of the education system to actually teach us critical thinking. No, nah, it's, I, th I think, um, I don't know. Ross, Ross Tucker wrote a really good article, The Polarization of Science. So, like, if you just look at anything, um, I don't want to get into it, but you know, we've got politics and religion. Mm. Black and white is what people want. Like, mm. it's easy. It's easy to understand, makes for a good headline, clickbait, whatever it is. Like, it's easy to describe, um, you know, like, obviously, um, for those that, that follow the podcast and me, I'm doing a keto diet and immediately people assume like, that's what I want everyone to do. And I, th and I'm getting, I love it. I get great results. And, um, the biggest takeaway as Matt and I have spoken on, on this podcast, like from our PhDs is, oh, hang on, you can't say yes or no. Like, you know, like I went in like being like, man, I'm, I've got this study that's designed to show where low carb is going to like just work you know and then i just like i i had to swallow you know my pride and really look at it and go i can't say that like these highly trained men um not so much in the woman but the highly trained men like they were they could operate optimally on on either diet like it didn't like they lost body fat so i can definitely you know i could say that with with statistical significance and some people responded better than others you know but like people don't want to hear that they want to hear like, like, yes, I want to do this thing that's going to make me better. And then, you know, you've got interval training, you've got base phase, like aerobic base training, you know, you've got, and then you've got the individual that can do all that training, like you said, just never improve their VO2 max, but then gain muscle like nobody's business. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's not too much of a leap, as I said, to, to think about this variation. We see it in everything else we do. But when we try and make that jump to, to that sort of health area, it, it just seems a little bit too much. And it's, it, you almost view it as like a charlatan if, if you say, I, I don't know, because, you think, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he can't give me a straight answer. 
And you, you see this with health professionals and medics all the time, and it, it must just be incredibly frustrating. But I think science in that regard is the ultimate ego checker. Um, I, I used to think, oh, this is a great study. And then I'd get it submitted for publication, and it would just be torn apart. And you have, it, it makes, you, it trains you to think, okay, what are the potential angles that this could be approached at? What are the potential outcomes? And you have to address all of them. And you, you, you have to speak in the gray areas. You can't speak in absolute certainty. And then it raises questions about correlation versus causation and all those sorts of things. And so it, it is, it is difficult to try and get that message across without seem, sounding completely useless and ambiguous. Um, because generally speaking, there are some outcomes that we can, we can talk about, like lowering of resting heart rate during following endurance exercise and those sorts of things. And particularly the way in which the exercise sort of, and I don't like using this term, but fitness industry is sort of moving towards that high intensity interval training. Um, and that sort of seen as the, the, the new thing. And, uh, something that was sort of looping back to one of my previous comments was that there was a, a BBC presenter who had a stroke following an intense rowing exercise. Um, so was doing high intensity intervals on the rowing machine and had a stroke. And then all of a sudden, you see some of his comments, it's like, oh, it was the rowing machine that did it. And it's just like, oh, no, like that there's clearly something else going on there. And so that's going to deter people away from exercise. And even some of the comments I've made here about potential downsides of exercise have to be very clear and say, <laughs> no, exercise is good, but this is the other side of it. Um, and that's that's something that even within the science field, in, in my field, um, that I'm sort of struggling with a little bit at the moment because there's this, overarching theme of exercise and so you read some of the titles of the articles and they say brain blood flow regulation during exercise and for me the obvious question is what type of exercise so and we talked about the changes in blood pressure well if you look at cycling if you had someone sitting on a bike their blood pressure would be pretty stable whereas if you had someone in a rowing machine their blood pressure is going up and down and all over the place exactly what you see during resistance exercise if you look at blood pressure during running, you actually see small fluctuations. It's called the beep phenomenon. As you heel strike, that generates a pressure wave through the cardiovascular system, and you actually see fluctuations in blood pressure. So it begs the obvious question, well, is the regulation of brain blood flow exactly the same, given that we have huge disparities in the blood pressure profile? But everyone's looping, um, lumping exercise together as one. It's like, well, you can't say that they're all the same. And so when we think about the clinical application, well, maybe it's no surprise that someone had a stroke during high-intensity rowing because they're getting huge swings in blood pressure, and that's going to highlight an underlying pathology. Whereas if the person had been doing high-intensity cycling, for example, you wouldn't have seen that big swing in blood pressure, and it may not have happened. So you can't treat even exercise, that variability within exercise, you can't treat everything the same. And even at a at sort of a research level, even those sorts of things are quite often overlooked. So it, it's it's no surprise that that happens across the spectrum. Yeah, it's one of the, like, um, the, like, scientists says, you know, they put that in the article. But, like, one thing we, like, 
I guess having a PhD means like you should have a certain level of understanding of, of various factors that go into like your area of expertise and you shouldn't be seen to be saying X equals Y kind of thing. But the fitness industry, um, if you are a, someone who maybe has zero training or a six month um, qualification, you have every, <laughs> you almost have every right to say, Three sets of ten equals this much weight loss and this improvement in body composition, um, you know. And so they're they're happy to say that, and it's going to get them business, and it's going to get you know whatever generate following um, and, and all of that. And they have no repercussions. This is something else. This is another topic, I guess. But then as a as a um, scientist, like you you're trained to understand that there's a lot of factors that go into it. So you're going to say, well, look, I don't know. You know? Yeah, but like, the scientists that everyone knows, they're taking a concrete stance where they stand on this. They like they pick a side and they tell everyone. Yeah, like what you side think about Tim Noakes and the low carb, like and or and how much trouble they got in, him into. But there's also the the high intensity interval people. There's the you know, there's there's these advocates of certain ways of training. And I think like some scientists can buy into their own dogma as well. Like um, I don't like. Because like what well, we're in like being in um like in the endurance sports world and triathlon like a lot of them do the sport and are relatively good at it, a lot of the scientists. And so I don't I don't know about like this the stuff you guys follow, um, like the mountain biking. I don't know how much scientists is sort of really in that area, um, and outspoken about any particular thing, but um, you know, it's and and so people will buy into it because like they have, you know, they have the doctor, they have the PhD at the end of their name, and so they must mm. be right. Yeah, exactly. And there's a couple of things about that, and you, you always see the headlines on stuff. Academic says, <laughs> and there was there was a bit of a yeah, a bit of a kick on about obesity potentially not being um, a negative health effect. <laughs> oh, and, not that one. And yeah. so I'm not even going to get started on that. But <laughs> the headline was academic says, and it's just like, well, if you actually read the article. Then you'd you'd know that that academic had absolutely nothing to do with that area, um, so it, it's interesting. And then going back to your earlier comment, yeah, I completely agree with Pete. The fitness industry speaking in black and white terms because it wouldn't really be a good selling point. Is do three sets of ten and you may get something out of it. Like that's not gonna that's not really gonna sell, is it? And for the for um, the research side of things, it does a PhD doesn't give you any sorts, sort of absolute authority in the area. All it does is teach you how to do research. And so along the way, you do gain skills and expertise in an area, but it just teaches you to speak, uh, think critically. And, and, and that's something that's something completely different altogether, um, which, yeah, which, as I said, is, is generally lost on, on some people. And even, even within academics, um, I'm not saying that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's, it's, it is easy sometimes to, to take a side and get trapped up in your own research findings and, and things like that. It, it, it is very difficult. All right. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Blake. I think that was like really eye-opening in terms of something Matt and I never talk about on on the podcast and it's uh yeah 
definitely got my answers out of that, Matt. Yeah, it's great to hear like your your position as a scientist and using the evidence that you have and then tying that into the whole story. And I think like the story is obviously important to everyone, not just people exercising, but definitely to people exercising for all the reasons you said. And I think that it's pretty cool to now give that, that pool of evidence and information to, to our listeners. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Perry. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. So thanks, Dr. Perry, for coming on the show. It's awesome to have all the information you have for us. If you want more sports science information, sign up for our newsletter on performanceadvantagepodcast.com. We have webinars that you can gain access to and some more exciting information coming up in the next few weeks. So sign up on performanceadvantagepodcast.com and we will keep you up to date. Sweet. Catch you later.